0: And welcome to the heart of medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Pyle Coley, and I'm joined by my co hosts, Dr. Suzanne Barron and Dr. Hari Naidu. Hey guys, you ready for today's topic? Yep, ready. Let's do it. All right. Well, today we're talking about something that literally has had the medical community on the edge of its seat. And no two people in the medical community seem to agree whether this is a good idea or not. We're talking about doctors' unions. Now, labor unions have been around for a while. But in the past two years, we have really seen a huge surge in the number of doctors that are unionizing. And at least nine hospitals in the United States, including the Harvard Hospitals, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Brigham and Women's Hospital, where Suzanne and I trained, have now formed physician unions. There's also a group called the Committee of Interns and Residents that has the largest membership of physicians at over 24,000 people. Now, this is a huge jump of about 40% since the start of the pandemic. And many people are actually blaming the pandemic for why unions have now become so common in medicine. So of course, when you're a resident, the hours are long and the pay is small. And as medical trainees, all of us have worked 28 to 30 hours in a row, sometimes working 100, 110, 120 hours a week. And we don't get paid that much. We have an average starting salary of about 60,000. But are unions the answer to a better life, or are they a sign of progress? And how do they impact the care of our patients? So let's jump right in. I first want us to talk about whether or not we, as individual physicians, are in favor of medical doctors unionizing. What do you guys think?
1: So, you know, I've been watching this topic. This has been going on now for a few years, and I think there's a lot to unpack here. I do think that... um that unionizing is is very reasonable. And I'll tell you why. I think the, the days of the past where doctors were more independent, had a lot more autonomy, most of us were in uh, proper practices and very few were in academic employed models, those days are are long gone. And if you look at residents and uh, fellows, which is what we're focusing on today, you gotta understand that these uh, you know, we we didn't have much choice in where we work. So for people who don't understand that, after medical school, you basically choose a field And you go through a match process where you rank the places that you'd like to go to um, in in order of your preference. And you don't really know where you're going to go until one day where everybody opens their envelopes and they figure out which hospital they go to. So if you think about that, you're matching into an employment and you don't really know all the benefits or all the uh, issues that happen at that hospital that take care of you as an employee. And you really don't have a lot of say in terms of whether you can take that contract or not. I mean, basically you're taking the contract because you're in the match. So you're all of a sudden in an, in a situation where you have to take an employed role at a hospital that you don't know all the details with, and you have to live with that process, and you don't know what those administrators are like, you don't know how how, uh, how well they're taking care of their residents. You can do a little bit of research ahead of time, but you don't really know, and then you're kind of stuck there. But,
0: hurry, I'm going to push back on you a little bit, because we're not employees, we're students. We are taking an educational role. We're doctors in training when we go into the match. Should we be labeled as employees and have employee privileges or should we be labeled as students? And this is actually something that came up in 1976 at Cedars-Sinai during a very famous case about medical residents pushing back on their work hours. And the courts ruled that they were actually students and they were there for an educational experience. They were not there as an employee. And the salary was just meant to offset living costs. It wasn't actually meant to be an income. So what do you think about that?
1: I think that's a tough one. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think I agree we're students at that level. And, you know, all of us are 10, 15 years out from that that uh, that time period. But the truth is, uh, most of them are late 20s, early 30s. These are individuals who have families, who have uh, other responsibilities and debt and whatnot. And it really is an employment because they're using that money to start their lives and live their lives, pay rent to do everything else. So yes, it's, it's a, a student trainee type of relationship, but it's also an employed relationship. So I think because of those two roles, you then have to look at how well are they taking care of you as a student versus how well they're taking care of you as an employee. I I I think that's changed.
0: I would argue you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be a student and have the protections of the, you know, ACGME, which is a graduate medical organization that protects you as a student and gives you protected time to learn and and what have you, uh, you know, encourages you, teaches you, and then at the same time also have the protections offered to an employee where you're actually, you know, there in an employment capacity. So I, I would actually argue the opposite. I mean, I think medical unions as a resident or a trainee – I think are a terrible idea because I think what they're doing is distracting from the academic environment. What they're doing is taking attention away from the learning, which is what you're there for. And yes, sometimes the hours are long when you're learning. And what they're putting the focus on is the work-life balance and making sure you have your weekends and making sure you have good pay and and all of those are of course important. I don't think we should abuse the students, but I think we may have taken it too far. Now, as grown-up
2: physicians, I would argue the opposite, but I don't know. What do you think, Suzanne? Well, I think what you guys are coming at it is is that there are there are two there are two there are two groups of people here, right? We're talking about residents and interns, and whether or not you know how we feel about them unionizing, and then we're talking about you know attending physicians, and those I think are very different groups or, mm-hmm. of, of of folks. Um, when we think about that, I think in terms of residents and interns, I think you know it's a hard thing. Um, you know, I think the reality is is we know that residents work long hours. We all did. And they are, you know, primarily really do contribute significantly uh to the care for patients. Um, but we have to also recognize that they are also getting something back in return, which is, you know, you know, some very valuable training that frankly is expensive for, you know, the training hospital to provide. You know, I mean I I sort I I work in a teaching institution. I love teaching fellows. I have worked in uh, institutions where there has been less teaching or there's less residents and fellows. And certainly, you know, care can be more efficient when, you know, it's just me going through the procedure and doing my thing as opposed to having to, you know, take the time to teach teach a fellow. So I think it really ends up being a bit of a, there is a give and take in the resident and training institution relationship. And whether or not a union would get in the way of that relationship, the answer is probably yes. But it, I think the key is going to be, is could a union optimize that relationship in a way that there is still that valuable training, that valuable education perspective, while also recognizing that, you know, we need to provide appropriate working environment for, you know, folks who are, who are giving care to our patients.
1: I think that's the key, right? Because I mean, all this time the ACGME was, was had regulations and protecting the residents and trainees. But I guess if, if the hospitals, if these, if these, uh, they are going towards unionization. That inherently means that they don't feel that though that the ACGME is is doing enough to regulate that and and uh, and make the environment beneficial for them. So that must be what's happening late, uh, lately in terms of why now.
0: But what do you think? I mean, I think honestly, it's actually a result of the cancel culture. I feel like the residents and trainees that are now rising through the ranks of medicine are much more focused on work life balance. And 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 you know, of course our pendulum has shifted that way and it should. But I also think that the that the sort of approach to anything that you don't like, whether it be driven by social media or, you know, just the culture that they're growing up in, is to protest and to cancel. And and to me, This is shocking, the fact that the residents took it so far as to actually go on strike. And of course, when you think about a union, you know, if you're going to join the union, you have to play by the rules. And some of the rules of the union are that if you're not happy, then you have to be willing to walk away and go on strike. I could never have imagined doing that as a medical resident because, you know, I mean, your patient is the one who's caught in the middle. And so the fact that they took it that far to me almost makes me worried that it's now becoming, you know, a a bit of a cancel culture that, hey, if I'm not happy with the fact that I have to work 100 hours a week, even if it's to take care of better care of, you know, Mrs. Jones or learn more about pneumonia or whatever, I'm just going to go on strike or I'm going to complain to my union. And I'm concerned that it's going to start a little bit of a witch hunt where the hospitals then start becoming, you know, more protective as well. And at the end of the day, it's our patients that are going to get impacted.
1: Yeah, but I have conflict. So first thing you said is the work-life balance, which, you know, we've talked about this and we were big proponents of that. So the entire field has changed to us all wanting to do different things in life and to make sure that we have a balance in life. So we have better, healthier relationships. We can raise our kids. We can have our hobbies. And so as attendings, we're doing that. So it makes sense that that in training. They're going to want that to do that, too. It's not like all of a sudden we have stayed in the work ethic that we had 30 years ago. No, the whole field has changed. So I like, would argue what you're saying.
0: No, I mean, I, so, so the way you lived your life in college, Harry, when you were training is different than how you live now, right? In terms of the size of the place you live in, how much money you spend, there are different phases of your life. And similarly, with medical residents, the phase of training is not the same as being in attending. When you're done training, your learning curve is a lot less steep. You are making a commitment to your education. You're making a commitment to your patients by taking on that residency program, by by entering into that match. And I mean, if you're not up for it, then by all means, don't feel pressured and walk away.
1: Well, but, but you... when, I, when we were training, we saw all these people who were much older than us and they didn't have that work-life balance. So we we, ha- we were emulating what they were doing at that point, which was basically devoting all their time to the field. So I think I still think the whole thing has changed and we have to recognize that there should be some change at that group as well.
2: So I I think there's a couple of things to to unpack here, too. And and one of them is is that, you know, I think as physicians, whether you're a trainee or you're an attending physician, that we all, you know, we all went into this. We took an oath that we would do everything possible for our patients and that our responsibility to our patients is the highest calling. It's paramount. And so I think, you know, because of that, a lot of us do feel that, you know, patient care, we value patient care a lot of times over our own needs. And I think every single one of us has a story of, you know, the patient needed us in the hospital. We didn't go home. We missed, you know, whatever, you know, thing that was planned at home in our family life or, you know, we didn't eat our dinner or we didn't sleep or whatever because we felt that the patient's needs were over our own. And so I think a lot of times what we say is we say, because we value patient care so much, that's why we should avoid unionization because we fear that breaking, you know, if we're going to break that if we're going to break that promise to our patients and that collective action can harm patients. But I think there's actually a couple of issues with this. And the reality is, is that we can have collective action, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to strike. Correct. Um, and so I think that there's, you know, there's a spectrum here where we can, where where folks can come together as a collective union. That doesn't necessarily require striking in a way that, you know, is going to put patient care, at, you know, in harm's way. And I think the other thing is, is is that, you know, and I will say this is, you know, this, that what I'm about to say may not prove true in the current era. But, you know, there have been studies that have been done that haven't necessarily shown that, you know, physician unions um, have hurt patient care. Now, certainly whether that, that relates really into strikes and certainly with what's going on over in the UK right now, you know, I, I don't know about that currently. But there have been some older studies that have said that you know physicians can unionize without hurting patient care uh in an, in a in a in a large way i mean it's yeah, the other thing
1: yeah, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, Suzanne's making an excellent point because, you know, nurses have unions. Yep. Sometimes we have pharmacists that have unions. So I do think that there is an art to unionizing. And I do think it, it needs to be done in a way that does respect the sanctity of medicine and the work hours. But again, I would just still stick with my original point, which is that residency is not the right time to do it. Now, once you're finished with training, you'll have a mature sense, not just of what your job, what the career, what the expectations look like. And it's a lot longer period. You're not talking about a few years you're talking about the rest of your life, then I do think that it makes sense to have that collective leverage bargaining opportunity to try to change your work environment.
1: I also want to say one more thing, which is that, you know, when there's when there's a strike, people oftentimes just say that the doctors are at fault. They're the ones striking, right? But everything's a relationship. And uh I agree with you. I, I think striking should be the last resort. And I think I'm gonna assume that it must be the last resort in Britain, for example, if that's happening. And what it means to me is that th- that Both sides are not willing to strike a compromise. And if you think about it, we put so much weight on our relationship with the patient and we make it, we take a Hippocratic oath and we want to make sure we do right by the patient. It's very hard to not do that. Whereas the other two other constituents in the healthcare field, such as the hospitals, the insurance companies, everybody else doesn't really have that oath. So they kind of know that all this time for decades, we wouldn't walk away. And so I just think that we're at, we're at risk of being taken advantage of repeatedly by a system that knows that at the end of the day we will take pay cuts and do all this kind of stuff because we want to take care of the patient and and make sure that there's somebody left defending the patient, and that puts us in a situation that makes it very hard going forward, especially as the healthcare system really, you know, uh, coalesces, uh, you know, uh, on the one side in a very business way, and on the other side the patient and the physician.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. They they take advantage of the fact that we are all so committed. Like as physicians, we do feel this ethical and moral obligation to our patients. And and I would say it's not just the healthcare systems; it's the insurance companies. Yeah, you know, it's 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 the pharmaceutical companies. It's really kind of the spectrum of the the for profit businesses that are out there that do abuse the individual physician, push them to their limits, and that's really why we're seeing so much burnout and attrition in medicine. So you know, in a way. I do think that potentially collectively leveraging our bargaining power, whether we want to call it a union or, or call it something else, is a really great way for us as physicians to incite a grassroots effort to change things. But one thing I, I do want to mention is that I don't know that we necessarily should always just be leveraging for ourselves. Now, of course, the resident unions are leveraging for better working hours and you know longer maternity leaves and those types of things but i feel like we should also take advantage of this type of a collective bargaining opportunity to leverage for our patients to leverage for the changes that we want to see in the healthcare system with the delivery of healthcare with the you know administrative burdens the billing hassles all of the other things that can impact our patients care
2: I think that's a really important point that you make, Kyle. Is is that I, you know, I think a lot of folks, when they think about physicians unionizing and they think about physicians striking, they are focusing on the fact that, okay, well, they're asking for more money or they're asking for longer, you know, better work hours or better work life balance. But the reality is, is I do think that these are things that, you know, and this needs to be the focus is that this is on behalf of patient care. Yes. I mean, we all talk about this, right? Like, you know, do you want your loved one being cared for by somebody who has been awake and on on service for 48 hours? No, you want the person to be cared by for somebody who's like three hours into their shift, right? We know that the airline industry has has limits for how long pilots can work and for because they that is what is safe and what's appropriate. So I think even though there is this kind of well we should be compensated or we should, work less hours, you know, that there is some that does need to be framed some ways, you know, on the fact that that's to also benefit patient care. I think the other thing is, is is that, you know, when physicians do unionize, and again, are looking at collective actions that we have to think about, you know, what other things that they're asking for, they're wanting to make sure that that they're working in an environment that is appropriate for patients. Now, I remember when I was actually in high school, and this really s- struck me because I was finishing high school and getting ready to go to uh, to college and planning to be pre-med that I remember there was a resident strike in Boston, uh, actually. And the reason, the main reasoning was to make sure that they had translators available for patients who are non-English speaking. Um, and they felt that without that, they were not providing appropriate care for the patients and it actually drilled them to a strike. And I remember thinking, you know, wow, like this is where, this is how far folks will go to make sure that their patients get the right care. And again, when we talk about better hours and we talk about, you know, longer, you know, longer leave and things like that, it doesn't quite, you know, resonate in the same way as striking directly for something patient care related. But I think it, again, it remains on a spectrum of that.
1: Yeah, I think what we do is when we lobby for ourselves, I think it is true that we're pretty much lobbying for, so that we can be a better doctor for our patients. Uh, for example, in the hospital, if I want to create a certain culture for my patients, I have to lobby very hard to make sure that I can create that kind of program and and kind of get the hospital to provide the resources to do that. And I think this is where it comes in that uh, not to strike or to unionize per se, but if we can't get that kind of um, Uh, headway with our individual uh, within the system in another way, then then this is where the unionization starts coming up.
0: I'm going to quote Dr. Jordan Cohen, who works with the Association of American Medical Colleges, and he wrote uh, a few years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine saying, white coats should not have union labels. And it was a very definitive anti-union opinion piece that he wrote that I actually enjoyed reading very much. But but I think what I'm hearing you guys say, and I think I sort of feel the same way, is that this really has to, the pendulum has to be in the middle. And and personally, to be honest, I don't believe that every time a doctor asks for less working hours, they're doing it because of their patient. I do think that it can go too far in the other direction as well. And working three days a week or, you know, four days a week or whatever it, it may not serve your patient so well because it may limit the access the patients have to the doctor. If you're a trainee and you're all of a sudden capped on your work hours and you're getting a lot less educational hours, will your education be actually not as good when you
1: finish? Yeah, there's so, a balance.
0: Yeah. So I think we really have to be careful because I think I love the idea of us sort of rising up and saying that we are the ones on the in the trenches. We're the ones who know what our patients need and we're the ones who are best able to articulate that But I also think we have to be careful and not let it become a personal, you know, I'm going to speak up and call my union representative every time I end up staying a little bit late in the hospital or, you know, something ends up going not the way that I want it to go, because that, I think, would be a dangerous precedent.
1: Switching gears now to sort of as as doctors uh, out in the community, there's lots of issues that we have a very hard time challenging as as medical societies, such as telemedicine throughout the country or such as non-compete clauses, where... Our leverage in those situations, which is truly for our patients, to be able to take care of our patients in different states, to be able to take care of patients even if we have to leave our hospital uh, for other reasons. These are these are issues that we have very little recourse other than people's good graces in in Congress or in your state legislature, and that's that's where I think part of the problems coming up today, which is that the hospitals, insurance companies, pharma industry, they all have a lot more leverage. And so they get more and more out of the system. And meanwhile, our patients and us, um, as the last bastion of the old ways of medicine, are, are not having that kind of clout to make sure that we can defend that. And that's why I think people have a lot of interest in this topic now.
0: I mean, I think that's an excellent point. Like, we're the last men standing that don't have any collective bargaining or leverage when it comes to the healthcare industry. And that's the reason it's been challenging for us to get the things for our patients pushed through. But I guess my question is, what is the point of lots of tiny little unions? Wouldn't it make more sense for all of us to have one large union with every single U.S. licensed physician? And shouldn't our professional organizations that we pay dues to and belong to sort of help to sort of be our advocates, help to create that infrastructure so that it's not tiny little unions, kind of all small little groups fighting, not just with each other, but also not having much of a voice, but one extremely large group that has a very loud voice.
1: I agree, but this is gonna take some time because right now we have all these specialties they all have their own society. They have the American Medical Association, which all the specialists pretty much don't participate in anymore. And so there is no one block and, and they all think very differently. So we, we do probably need something that where everything, span, where if a topic spans the entire house of medicine, where we can all agree on, which may be only a few things that we can get together and, and coordinate that effort. But that's going to take, you know, who's going to do that? But hopefully this kinds of podcasts will help us move in that direction maybe.
0: Yeah. No, I, but you're upcoming president of a professional organization, Harry. So I'm curious of your take. Like, let's say you're wearing, you know, that presidential badge. What, what are your thoughts in terms of what these types of organizations could do? Or do you think it needs to come more from the physicians in the group?
1: I don't know. I think that uh, I'll give you the example of the non-compete clauses, which is that, uh, uh, you know, the current administration has put it out there, the Federal Trade Commission, that we should ban all non-competes. That's for everybody in the country, not just medicine, but in every field. And so there was a lot of discussion within medicine about that. And I think most of the, especially societies, agree to that. So what we've been doing is sort of coordinating it by just making sure that each of them submits something to the FTC, but there is no one national coordinated approach. So I think that someone probably has to build that and, and look very strategically about how that could, be, could happen. Maybe me or maybe somebody else, I don't know, maybe the first uh, next few years we can move in that direction. But there probably are a few issues that we could all get together, rally behind that can sort of balance out the other big constituents of stakeholders in medicine. I think that is something that, that would be nice to see as a positive spin from all this that's happening uh, internationally and nationally.
2: Where I really kind of take away from this is is that, you know, I think as doctors, we've lost a little bit of the control that we have over practicing medicine to kind of bigger organizations that are, as you said, pile less in the trenches. And I think, you know, whether it's unions or societies, you know, there, there probably does need to be some movement to try to take back control or at least take back some control so that we can do what we went into this to do, which is to give good, high-quality patient care. That's getting harder and harder these days for a lot of reasons. And it isn't just, you know, one big organization. It's not just one big hospital or anything like that or an insurance group. You know, there's a lot of things. Our patients are sicker. You know, we're seeing more and more advanced disease processes. Folks have less access to medical care, so they're coming in sicker hours or longer. Hospitals are overshilled. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that are felt better that are contributing to this. But I think that, you know, what, you know, the kind of the common theme that I'm really hearing, and again, whether that's for attending physicians or for uh, folks who are in training, is, is that, you know, we need to probably figure out a way as a group to come together and try to uh, take back control a little bit so that we can really advocate and treat our patients in the best way possible. Hashtag take back medicine. I love it, Suzanne. <laughs>
1: I was gonna say one more comment. I think you've opened up with the whole issue of the COVID pandemic. And I do think that that was an accelerator because I think in most hospitals in the country that goes for trainees as well as for uh, seasoned attendings, we all had to shift gears and move from an educational aspect to a purely service and you know all hands on deck aspect. And I think that became even more uh, granular at the resident and trainee level where they just had to work uh, and work in areas that they weren't uh, signed up to work in a little bit outside the scope and certainly a lot of service and, and certainly some danger right we all had some danger so i think there's no blame there we all had to do it but you know as you said they're paid to be students and during that time, they really weren't as much students as they were workers because we were in a pandemic and a crisis. So I think that did accelerate the whole process. And um, you know, that these kinds of things may happen again. So maybe, maybe looking at it and seeing what we would do differently is is, is what sparked this as well.
0: Yes, I think that that that's a really good point, Harry. And I I don't know for myself, I'm a different physician today than I was even three years ago. You know, just before the pandemic started, and my outlook on medicine is different. And and I think. That that, along with all the other factors we've discussed, has really been what has changed the way that we've practiced medicine. So thank you for sharing your opinions today. We hope that you all will write in with some of your opinions on whether or not doctors should unionize. Please be sure to subscribe and follow us wherever you get podcasts on Spotify or the Apple Store. And if you like what you hear, please review us as well. Until next time. Thanks, guys. This podcast is sponsored by Esperion Therapeutics. Esperion Therapeutics, providing the next step in getting patients to their LDL cholesterol goal. Visit www.esperionscience.com to learn more.